Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. My guest this week is Madeline Holly Rosing, creator of the Boston Metaphysical Society series. Since beginning that series, Madeline has created graphic novels, novels, short stories, coloring book, and is currently working on an audio drama. Oh, and she's run nine Kickstarters and has literally written the book on the subject, Kickstarter for the Independent Creator. We talk about Kickstarter, check the show notes for info on her latest, the intersection between screenwriting and graphic novels, working with collaborators for those graphic novels, and how much more diverse creators and fans are than many people realize, and leaving room to be surprised in your creative work, and much more. Here's my conversation with Madeline Holly Rosing. Welcome to the podcast, Madeline. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. So I'm curious to know how you got your creative start. Were you a kid? Were you a little older? Um, I I was a kid and uh, was bored pretty easily. <laughs> uh, and I just, I remember as a, a, a preteen, I, I, I don't even know when it started, but it would always take me a long time to get to sleep. So I'd essentially tell myself a story. And I think that's where it all started because it's just the whole imagination. And, you know, I love to read. Um, I think one of the first books my mother read to me was A Wrinkle in Time. I love that book. (laughs) And my brother was a big uh, sci-fi fan, which clearly in in my formative days had had an influence. Um, And then I just expanded out exponentially from that. But yeah, I think it's just because I would entertain myself by, by telling myself stories. And of course, I was always the hero because, you know, Obviously. Obviously, yes, of course. (laughs) How could you not be the hero of your own story? (laughs) Right. It's the only way to guarantee that you're the hero, right? Is anybody else going to make you the hero of their book? No. (laughs) Yeah. So your brother was older? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, he's about six, seven years older than I am. So, um, yeah, that's actually a bigger gap than one most people realize. Mm -hmm. So like when I was, you know, a, a preteen, he was on his way to college. So, yeah. Was he kind of handing down his favorite stuff to you or? No, I mean, it was just around. So I was just influenced by it. But I, I was always a big reader growing up. So, you know, I would see his, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs <clears throat> covers and stuff that he just had around and he was a big Frazetta fan with the art. Uh, so, and I just always love those stories. And luckily for me, growing up, my local library would have like, you know, the summer reading things where you would read X amount of books and you'd get a sticker or, you know, something silly like that. And, you know, my mom was all for that. So I just would go through rows of fantasy and science fiction books. So clearly I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a genre writer. I've written other things, um, uh, you know, outside of of that, Uh, particularly when I was, uh, uh, I have an MFA in screenwriting from UCLA. And while I was there, I did a a lot of things that were, you know, action adventure that that were outside of, of genre. And 
until I realized, you know, this is where my heart is and my home is. So let's just start, you know, world building and, and, and doing it my way. So it was, ended up being a lot more fun. That sounds fantastic. And I want to get back to the MFA. But before we do, when did you start actually putting words on a page, rather than just telling them to yourself at night? When did you start taking writing as a serious thing? Um, I guess that's kind of that's kind of hard to answer. Because I would always write stories in school. And the teachers would tell my parents like, uh, you, you know, she's gifted, right? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, they were very enthusiastic about it, because like, of course, she's gifted. She's my child, you know, kind of attitude, <clears throat> but not really understanding or encouraging writing as a career, because I don't think to them writing was a career. It was just, it was something that somebody else did. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and in fact, my early career aspirations didn't have anything to do with writing. And, uh, which is a shame because I think I could have gotten better faster Mm -hmm. if, if it had been, you know, I'd been more focused at, at an earlier age. Um, cause at some point, um, I think I had been writing and writing stories, you know, through my teenage years. And then I stopped because to me, they felt, they felt they were immature Mm -hmm. and, Cause I was immature. I was like 15 years old. So yeah, I decided that I wasn't going to write again until I had some life experience. And <clears throat> so when I was in my twenties, um, I think I'd finished pretty much, I'd finished graduate school and, um, had a, had a full-time job in New York at the time and was writing and taking extension courses in screenwriting uh, and doing, you know, and just writing on the weekends and on my lunch hours. And that's when it all started to really gel, I think. And I had had some very, very good instructors. Uh, it was through NYU mm-hmm. um, and, you know, just learning the craft uh, and that this, this was something I really wanted to do, but you know, it's, as everyone knows, you know, when you have a full-time job, um, writing on the side is difficult. And I was also a competitive athlete at the same time and traveling. So yeah. Uh, when I mentioned on your, your little form of like, you know, what are your challenges? Like time management is a huge, (laughs) huge thing. I mean, even now when, when I'm not, you know, competing or anything, it's been year, I've been retired for years. Um, but yeah, time management is always, is always a thing. Have you found anything that works really well for you with that? Um, sometimes I'm very good about, okay, for an hour, I'm going to just do the admin stuff for the business and then I'm going to go write. And when I'm not doing a lot of traveling, that works out really well. Um, when I'm traveling, not so much. And, and with you know the pandemic, and now we're kind of heading into a mini con season that's being condensed into three months. 
uh, literally starting next, well, on August 27th, I'm literally gone for three weeks because I'll be going from San Jose, then to Boston. And then um, my husband and I are going up to Portland for Rose City. And that takes like, we, we drive. So it takes two days to get up, two days to get down. You got three days there. Week is right. gone. Yeah. So, yeah, I, wow. I'm, I'm always amazed that I get anything done. But I, <laughs> but I think it's just because I just do a little bit every day and I just keep chipping, 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 chipping away at it. And it all, it all manages to get done. And, you know, I, I'm glad that you said that because I feel like so many people think that in order to accomplish anything, they need, you know, a solid day or a week or at least like three days or whatever. And that if they're only going to do five minutes, half an hour, whatever, that that isn't good, that it doesn't count, that it will never get anything done. But it so obviously can. And in so many cases, it's so much better to take the five minutes you have than to wait around for the day or the weekend or the week off or the month off that is probably not really going to come as quickly as you want it to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm basically by the afternoon after I've gotten all the morning stuff done, you know, that's when I work and um, I'm usually pretty good about that, but I mean, right now things are, kind of nutso because <clears throat> I'm heading out. I'm, well, I'm producing an audio drama and which, you know, most all the recording is done. I have a terrific audio director. Um, so, you know, I'm listening to stuff as, as he sends it in. A, a lot of the heavy lifting is already done for that. Um, but then starts the heavy lifting for the Kickstarter, which is in October. <clears throat> um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of not so, but sometimes I just say like, Hey, I got to go do something fun here. I got to push aside all the other administrative stuff that needs to be done. And I just want to go work on the story. And so I'll just go, I'll just go do that. And I'll say, screw it. <laughs> yeah. Well you have to, or you'll just yeah. burn yourself out on the administrative stuff and never get to the creative stuff that fuels you. And that's just a self-defeating cycle. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I, I could actually probably use some staff right now, <laughs> but who can afford staff? And, uh, often is the case that, uh, it takes as long as it takes to explain to someone that something needs to be done, you could have already done it. Mm -hmm. Um, there are a few exceptions and, and I, I do utilize that more. I do contract out more stuff now because I just, I don't have time to do it. Who do I, I, I have, fortunately enough, I have enough, um, contacts out there that it's like, okay, I need to get X, Y, Z done. <laughs> Who do I know? Let me send them a message, <clears throat> see if they have time. And, uh, usually, you know, it, they say like, yeah, I can, you know, if it's not a rush, I'll go like, yeah, yeah, sure. And then it gets done. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. We that all use staff. Lovely. <laughs> oh, it'd be so lovely. Yes. <laughs> so let's go back to your MFA because you said MFA in screenwriting. Correct. And you were writing genre and I'm, I'm particularly curious about that because I know for fiction writers in particular, there tends to be a stigma in MFA programs about 
writing genre, mm-hmm. which fortunately did not exist at Goddard, which is good because to my surprise, at least as much as anyone else's, I ended up writing a YA fantasy novel that I never saw coming. Um, but I don't know if that stigma exists in screenwriting as much. Um, I Well, I did both. I wrote genre and non-genre, but I didn't really feel like there was any any stigma at all. Uh, I had one professor who was absolutely intrigued that I could write genre because it just wasn't where his head was at. Mm-hmm. And um, he actually ended up helping me shop that script around because he goes, he goes, I can't write that, but I can help produce that. Oh, that's awesome. Um, as most things, it, you know, didn't go anywhere in the long run. Um, but you know, you learn, you learn a lot from it. And, uh, you also learn that the stigma of, you know, women can't write action is still (laughs) alive and well. Yeah. Cause uh, literally I, I, this producer, he said, I mean, we're sitting down in a meeting together and he's looking at the script. <clears throat> and he's going like, wow, that's a great action sequence. This is great. Wait a minute. Who wrote this? And he'd look, he goes, it was a woman. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, literally he was saying this to my face. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And, he, and he's going like, this is great. This is great. Because I, you know, it's like, of course, women can write a lot. Anyway, that's a whole right. other. Yeah. Yeah. Topic. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> It reminds me of the whole, you know, women can't write comedy. Uh, yeah. That, that kind of thing. Gee, you're uh, right. I'm so sorry. The humor switch was never turned on in my poor little female brain. <clears throat> poor yeah. deprived me. Give me a break. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, <clears throat> I, I write so much in obviously in Boston metaphysical, because that's what my career is, is built on. Um, <clears throat> I've been fortunate in that I, I have been asked to uh, be part of other people's anthologies and, and, and play in their sandbox and their IP with their characters, which is a lot of fun. And because <clears throat> it's wonderful to be able to write a comic script and then hand it to someone else. Say, here, you produce it. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You know, I'll do whatever editing you want, but here you you produce it. <clears throat> but that's when I often take the the opportunity to exercise my comedic chops, mm-hmm. and and that's always a lot of fun. And that's it's also a nice break from Boston Metaphysical because I can exercise different parts of my brain, and which is always refreshing. Um, <clears throat> There's, there's another story, of course, I can't talk about it yet, that I, I'm doing for another IP that I'm very, I can't wait till I can announce it, but I can't <laughs> yet. <clears throat> but that that's another thing where I get to play in somebody else's sandbox, and it's just so refreshing and, and nice to be in working in another world. Yeah. <clears throat> just for listeners who aren't familiar with the term IP intellectual property yeah 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 it's not it's not fan fiction um which is actually playing in somebody else's ip in in sandbox um uh but this is actually getting paid for writing in somebody else's you know intellectual property i never thought about the whole anthology thing that way but that yeah 
It's like a little break from your own world. Try somebody else's on for size and see what happens. Do you ever, when you do a project like that, do you come back to your own work with new ideas? Uh, yeah. <clears throat> and, or sometimes <clears throat> it gives me a different sense of how to structure, which is really nice, or just a different approach to my own work, uh, which is actually happening right now. <clears throat> Excuse me, my <clears throat> allergies. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm currently outlining the next Boston metaphysical graphic novel and which I think is going to be three issues, but I may do all three issues in once and, and just have one graphic novel. But the uh, project that I'm working on, <clears throat> which cannot be named um, because of the process that they, that I'm doing with them um, is helping me look at this graphic novel structurally a little differently. And, and that's been very, very helpful. Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take improvement wherever I can get it. <laughs> if I can learn something from somebody else, I'll, I'll take it. Cause Hey, there's always room for improvement. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm curious since you started with screenwriting or you got your MFA in screenwriting at yeah. least, and you do graphic novels, I know that, um, unused scripts can make great fodder for graphic novels. And I'm wondering if that connection exists for you if, or if this was a completely different process. Uh, it definitely exists. Uh, Boston Metaphysical was originally a TV pilot that I wrote uh, in the MFA program. And I actually wrote two episodes. I wrote the pilot and also another episode, which, what did the instructor call it? It's like the fifth episode in the series. Because if you can write episode number five, that means your series has legs. Okay. So I actually use the basis for episode number five for the audio drama. And I adapted that into the audio drama. Um, but the pilot, I adapted into the original six-issue miniseries. And for those of your listeners who are not familiar with the series. It's about an ex Pinkerton detective, a spirit photographer, and a genius scientist who battles supernatural forces in late 1800s Boston. And uh, my, I actually went back to school to learn how to write sequential art, otherwise known as comics, <clears throat> because it is different than screenwriting. Uh, I think knowing how to write a screenplay is very helpful to moving over to graphic novels because they're both visual writing. Um, but the pacing is different. Um, you have to think about paneling and you can actually direct, which you can't do in a regular script, particularly a spec script. Um, it's, I look at a graphic novel script as a communication document to my artist, my letterer, and possibly pre-press, because you know these are the people that are and the colorist, of course. Um, it's you know it's a document that has to serve all of these people. <clears throat> so you are writing not only descriptions but <clears throat> like notes for your letterer, 
um, notes to your colorist if you want something in particular. Uh, uh, in the sequels, because we have the original six-issue miniseries, which was drawn by Emily Hugh, and then the four sequels were drawn and colored by Gwen Tavares. And uh, they, the, both those women operated a little differently. Emily <clears throat> didn't do the coloring, but em Emily, <clears throat> both incredibly talented women and art artists, uh, you can designate the paneling um, of how, or if you want like insets, I mean, you can, you can be very, very detailed, but depending on the artist, sometimes you just gotta let them go and not micromanage them, but give them sort of like, okay, this is a, the template. And occasionally <clears throat> Emily would blow up my paneling and she was so sweet. She goes, I hope you don't mind, but I thought I'd do this. And then she'd show it to me like, this is brilliant. Just keep it. I'll work around it. Don't worry about it. <clears throat> and uh, Gwen pretty much keeps on script, uh, which is fine. But then she adds her own different flares to it, which is which is great. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it really depends on the, the artist and if you're working say like a work for hire uh it could be in the work for hire the artist is the one with the power in the room so you're going to write the script and they're going to do whatever the hell they want and that's fine too <laughs> so <clears throat> you you just kind of have to go with it depending on uh who's who's writing the checks yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. And, and I was, I'm glad that you went there because I was going to ask you how it is to balance because you do want the other people to have some creative input too, even Absolutely. though you have a vision. But I make it clear, uh, Gwen, let's see, well, Emily was with us for the original first six issues <clears throat> and Gwen's been with me now for what, three years, you know, three, three, three and a half years. Um, she just finished the book of demons, which is with the letterer right now. <clears throat> and the first thing I tell my artists is say, you know, I'm going to send you a script, <clears throat> but if you have a better idea, if you have an inspiration, just tell me, you know, communicate it to me. Cause I am probably going to go like, yeah, let's do that. And uh, that's happened a few times like with Emily, with our, our, our final, the cover for the trade. I was, you know, had a conversation back and forth about what I wanted on the cover. And she's like, no, you know, that's going to be too much. This is what I suggest. And I said, okay, let's do it your way. You know, there wasn't any fight. It was like, oh yeah, she's right. Um, yeah. I, I feel like that is, it's one of those things that for so many people, especially, <clears throat> maybe especially isn't the right word. It's just my perception. So I could be wrong, but I feel like there is a, tendency with people who are doing super artsy creative work to want to have total creative control even when they're working with other people and yet as you say you know we're all limited in what we can imagine ourselves and so if somebody else comes in with another idea you don't want to be so closed off to it that you say no to something that could be absolutely spectacular yeah. not only because you want the best possible thing but also because you don't want to be a complete control freak about it and you know turn off the other people that you're working with and i 
I, I get the sense that, you know, a lot of people don't think of it that way, that they think of it as, no, this is my thing and, and like try to hang on so tightly. Um, yeah, I mean, doing a graphic novel is in many respects, I mean, producing one uh, is like producing a movie. I mean, you, it's a much smaller team, of course. I mean, obviously with a movie, you've got an army um, or a you know, TV series, you've got an army. <clears throat> But still, it is a collaborative effort. And part of the process as the writer, creator, and the producer, and, and basically, I mean, I'm the one who writes the checks for my people. And, but I have to choose the right people. Mm-hmm. And that's on me. And part of being a good producer is being able to recognize and choose people who identify with your vision and so you can work well together it looks like you want it to look and or you know close and then they do their own thing and you go like yeah that's even better than i imagined that's so awesome um and yeah people constantly surprise me and and sometimes it's just dumb luck my uh letterer troy pateri who is amazing I met must have been eight, nine years ago now. And literally we had just, I'm not even sure. We started out as a, a an online co- web comic. And at first, and in fact, the, the first six issues are online for free. You can, you can read them. Anyone can read them. But I had, I had postcards made. Do I still have them? I still have a few. This is scary. <laughs> postcards, not that your viewers can see them, but uh, a friend of mine who I, met in one of my sequential art classes was vending at a conference and she says okay you can have a little bit of part of my table this little square because i'm going to be selling i said okay so i stood over there and just handed out i said oh we're a new web comic come check out whatever she goes oh this is this is troy he's a letterer he might want to he likes doing indie comics he might want to do your your comic so he says, oh, let me see a script. And she had told me to bring that with me. So I did. And he leafed through and he goes like, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> Turns out it, it, Troy, you know, has been with Top Cow forever. He uh, He's like one of the best. He's absolutely one of the best. And when I saw what he did, and then I looked at other lettering that was less professional, it really hit me how you could have the, the greatest story and the greatest artist, but if your lettering sucked, it would kill your comic, would kill it. And because of my relationship with um, my friend, I got introduced to Troy. Troy has been with me ever since. And I, you know, I'd be hard pressed to be convinced to use anyone else. So, oh, that's another issue because we have to work in his very busy schedule too to try to get things done. But, but I mean, he's definitely worth it. And, but that's part of the education process for, you know, learning how to, to produce a graphic novel. And you have to choose, choose good people. And how you choose good people, I'm not even really sure how you can teach that. <laughs> Yeah. Other other than, you know, you look at people's work and how it matches up to your ideals and you and 
you almost hope in the beginning, you just cross your fingers and hope for the best. Um, but yeah, uh, fortunately I've seen, I seem to be pretty good at, at choosing good, uh, team members. So, uh, yay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I mean, I, I love the idea of leaving room to be surprised. And, and I also, you know, have, have not, it has not escaped me that you have quite a few women working on your team, which I'm not sure is all that common, though it certainly should be because there are plenty of women who, you know, are funny, can write action, like action movies, read comics, yeah. the whole, the whole thing. But I, I don't know if it's just how that worked out or if that was a deliberate choice. But it was a, it's a deliberate choice. Uh, I decided when we started all this that since, you know, I'm the one, you know, writing, writing the metaphorical checks, no one write checks anymore. I know that <laughs> uh, that I'm going to have as many all female female members of the team as possible. Uh, Troy being the exception because he's just been with me for so long uh even the the vast majority of the people i hire for uh to do pinups for our kickstarters uh are women and or people of color um i just make a point of of doing that um because often like you said well women and people of color are often ignored in a very white male dominated uh industry and, uh, you know, I know I'm, I'm a very, very, you know, very, very tiny pea in the pod of all of this, but you know, I can, I can make a little difference. So where I can make a difference, I do. Absolutely. Have you encountered pushback because of that at all? Or is that the kind of thing that, you know, tends to go under the radar because people are just reading the comic and not really paying attention to who's doing what under, behind the scenes? Uh, the, the women notice that yeah the women noticed i the guys i don't think they care one way or the other but the women definitely notice and i partic particularly when i'm at cons and they see me behind the table and i've had women bring their daughters over and introduce me and you know i explain you know who i am and you know this is this is my business and this is all of mine um and guess what you can too you know, you, you learn the skills, you, you can do this too. Uh, which is, which is always interesting. It must and I love, I love doing that. Yeah. 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 I don't think, I don't think the guys, <clears throat> um, yeah, the guys, they look at the art and the story and yeah, some of, I'm sure some of them, that. yeah, I'm sure some of them notice, but they just haven't said anything, but just anecdotally, um, it, it's the women who, who actually make a comment or ask or something like that. So that makes sense to me, you know, just like I noticed that, that they would notice because you're not used to seeing other women doing that kind of stuff. Whereas I'm not sure it just registers with guys as much because they're used to seeing, you know, what they're used to seeing most of the time it's a guy, but if it's not, does it register in the same way? I doubt it. Yeah, probably not. There are a lot more women creatives at conventions now than there were uh, when I first started. 
Uh, I remember it was probably seven years ago, I'd be at like Long Beach Comic-Con or Expo. And I do remember looking down the artist alley, just my aisle. <clears throat> Every table was a white male, except for me at one end. And then there was uh, an African-American gentleman at the far end. And that was it for just my aisle. Uh, now you will see a lot more diversity, uh, a lot more. And you said that was only seven years ago? Yeah. That's a huge shift in seven years. There's a, It's a pretty huge shift. And I think conventions are paying attention. I know San Diego Comic-Con is, that they are really searching out for diversity. And because women buy comics. Yeah. You know, people of color buy comics. Everybody buys comics of all, every different shade and everything. <laughs> yeah. And yet it's still, a, you know, such a thing that is associated with particularly teenage white guys. Yeah. Even though that's just not the truth of it at all. Yeah. You know, much no, the same it, thing with, you know, science fiction TV viewership. <clears throat> it's all over the place, but the image is the teenage geek alone in his bedroom. Yeah. It's like, I remember when the X-Files was first on, I love the X-Files. I watched it every week and Yes, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, this is pre-streaming. <laughs> uh, but it used to be interesting because the only other people I knew who watched X-Files were other women, like myself. And then later on, I would meet guys who would say like, oh, and then there'd be these ridiculous articles of like, oh, you know, only women didn't watch the X-Files. I said, what? what? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, uh, the character of Dana Scully literally influenced a whole generation of young women to become doctors and FBI agents and scientists. I mean, she is an icon, I think, what with it for millennials? Mm -hmm. I think. I'm not sure. Or Gen Xers? I don't remember. I, I confuse all the different... Probably some of each. <laughs> a, little, a little bit of each. Yeah. 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 And yet, those images are so hard to budge. It's such a shame. But I'm glad that it's that it's changing in visible places like at cons. And it certainly, is. I mean, it is. I've only been to a handful of Doctor Who cons, but there, you know, there's a, a wide variety there, you know, especially, I want to say especially women, and that's probably not true. It's probably, you know, much wider than that even but i think i tend to notice the women more because i was so used to growing up you know with doctor who fandom being me and two friends of mine and the image that was outside of that was you know guys in their parents basements who were watching this show on you know saturday nights at 11 o'clock on pbs so yeah. it's great to go and just be like i'm not alone and actually the <sighs> The first big con that I went to, I was really thrilled to notice, you know, there were women dressed as the doctor and there were yeah. guys who were dressed as female companions. And I was just yeah. like, this is amazing. You know, yeah. more of this, please. Yeah. No, yeah, you, you see a lot of that. Um, yeah, cons are, are really nice. They, they've, they've gotten a lot, a lot better. Uh, with with diversity over the years 
And I can't imagine it, it being any other way at this point. I think it'd just be boring otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've seen, you know, Doctor Who Star Wars crossovers, you know, the, the oh, R2-D2 yeah. Time Lord, you know, I mean, so it's it's a hodgepodge of whatever you want to mash up, whatever way you want to mash it up. And, it, you know, if I had seen probably outside of that context, it, you know, the, the one that I really remember was, you know, this tall guy with a long red wig dressed as Donna Noble, who was uh. Catherine Tate on the show. And I thought, you know, wow, how much, how much grief would you take for that outside of a place like this? And yet yeah. it's so great that you can have somebody say, you know what? I think Donna's awesome. I'm going as Donna. And so what? And do that and not have that kind of, of pushback and challenge that is so ugh, outdated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, that's true. Um, but yeah, it's it's a ton of fun to see all the different mashups and the creativity uh, in the cosplay. Uh, I'll be going to Gaslight Expo at the end of September, early first weekend of October. Um, it's a steampunk convention, <clears throat> convention in San Diego. <clears throat> They've obviously been canceled the past few years mm -hmm. because of COVID. And uh, I think everyone's going to show up to that one. They can't wait. Uh, but they, but the costumes that, sh the, oh my God, I don't know if you've seen steampunk, the detail in many steampunk costumes, but it's just amazing. And I'm so impressed by the skill of many of these uh, tailors and seamstresses and that put together these costumes and um you know, they look great i would actually i hate dressing up myself <laughs> i love to see it on other people and and uh i admire it greatly but um i can tell you it's really hard to work 10 hours wearing a corset yeah yeah um and i've done that and i just i i don't particularly care for it <laughs> I don't blame you <laughs> Being able to move and breathe are kind of important. I will say uh, a corset gives you great posture. Yes. Great posture. <laughs> you don't have a choice. <laughs> that is correct. You you absolutely do not have a choice. And uh, and I, I'm always doing something wrong with the costume. And one of the other, uh, usually one of the makers who, who has a, a booth there will have to, they just like, get very frustrated with me and come over and like fix me <laughs> and i go thank you because i have no idea what i'm doing i'm a i'm a writer i i can do business and marketing but the costume side not so much yeah yeah but <laughs> but yeah you're right because the the steampunk costumes are so much more intricate than a lot of the other fandom costumes are yeah. And they are super impressive. I mean, you do feel like you've entered a completely different world in a way that you don't with some of the other things. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's absolutely true. And, and usually at the steampunk conventions, they do want to have some sort of theme. And, and so everyone tries to get in the theme. And I think the one for gaslight is uh, Paris, like the Paris expo. 
So I'm sure we're going to be seeing, you know, Eiffel Towers on people's hats or Eiffel Tower hats that blink and spin and do all sorts of wonderful things. And, um, you know, fabric that has, you know, Paris type motifs on them from scenery. And yeah, I'm just, I, I'm, I, I know some of the, the makers who, who do, who design and make these dresses. And I'm like, oh my God, they're just amazing. Yeah. And it occurs to me, we probably should explain exactly what steampunk is for anybody who's listening, who isn't familiar with it. Do you have a good definition? Um, I guess roughly you can think of it as Victorian science fiction, uh, where steam uh, technology is primarily steam driven. Uh, but that can be played with a little bit because it, it, it is a, it is a subgenre of science fiction and you can do cross genres with that. I mean, Boston metaphysical is it's, it's, it, it's often been described to me as more steampunk ish, uh, which in fact, that's what it is. It's what I do is more alternate history with a steampunk twist and paranormal elements. Um, and so, yeah, you'll see, uh, a lot of cross genre between steampunk and paranormal. Uh, you see that in all of Gail Carragher's, uh, mm -hmm. parasol protectorate, um, just wonder, beautiful world building romance of, you know, Victorian London, but with werewolves and vampires and all sorts of cool stuff. Um, she does a marvelous job. Uh, others take, uh, like Shelly Adina does a little more grounded approach in her Magnificent Devices series, uh, and which are absolutely charming. Um, those start in London and then and do end up in the United States and the West. I think she moves around. I haven't read all of them. There's like 12 of them. So, yeah, I have, haven't gotten to all of them. But there's always a chicken in it because she has pet chickens. So, <laughs> yeah, I interviewed her once. She's a, a lovely woman. And uh, and I actually had dinner with her a few years back. And I said in the interview, I said, you know, your stories are so much fun. You have such a great lead character. But what's the deal with the chickens? <laughs> and then to find out that, in fact, she has a whole flock of pet chickens and so that's why you get this really interesting, you know, emotional connection to the chickens in, in her story, because she has an emotional connection to her own chickens. Yeah. Why not use it? Yeah. 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 But I, I do feel like steampunk is so incredibly flexible. And I think that's a big part of the magic of it that you can bring in, you know, just about anything else you want with it and find a way to make it work. Yeah, the, you're gonna you see a lot more multicultural steampunk now, which is to me more interesting than your standard set in Victorian England. Um, that actually doesn't interest me that much. That the standard set in Victorian England because it's just been done so much. Mm -hmm. um, but you have uh, uh, Everfair was Everfair by uh, Nisi Nisi Nisi. Oh, sorry. It's a Sunday morning brain lapse. Um, uh, yeah, of course, my brain has just completely shut down on all the names. Um, I should have made a list of them. 
but yes, there are quite a number of uh, uh, multicultural steampunk out there. Um, I'll try to send you a, try to remember to send you a list. Okay. Yeah, I woke up with a sinus headache this morning, so that part of my brain just doesn't is not functioning right now. That's all right. We can always put it in the show notes. It's not a problem. Yeah. So since you've mentioned Kickstarter a couple of times, I wanted to ask you what your experience is as as the person who's running a Kickstarter. Like, it, I get the impression you've done a couple of them. So I'm wondering what all you've done it for and how it's worked out. And yeah, um, I've run nine Kickstarter campaigns. Uh, I've actually written a book called Kickstarter for the Independent Creator um, to help newbies uh, get a grasp of how to uh, structure the campaign um, from pre-launch to launch to fulfillment. Uh, I will say the very first campaign, we failed, uh, like a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. But we learned a lot. And I say we, and I include my husband in this, even though he doesn't run the actual campaign, he has to deal with me <laughs> during the campaign. So we is very accurate. <laughs> um, it's a second full-time job, uh, which, you know, that falls into the whole time management thing um, to run one. And uh I do not recommend it for the faint of heart. Uh, one of the best stories um, I can tell about that is I had a, a few years ago, a gentleman came to um, my table at a, I think it was WonderCon, and he bought the book, the Kickstarter for Independent Creator from me. He came back on, it was a Friday night, he came back Saturday, walks up to my table, he goes, I read your book. He says, I will never run a Kickstarter campaign. <laughs> And I looked at him and I said, that was the best $10 you ever spent because now you know what is required of you to run a successful campaign. <clears throat> and if you aren't willing to do that, which there's nothing wrong with that, not, not everyone, it's not for everyone. If you can get self-fund or get funds elsewhere, great, go do that. But the amount of time and emotional energy and stress that goes into running one, that if once you learn that, okay, this is just not for me, that's good information to have. Sure. And then you can figure out your plan B or C or however you want to you fund your project or, or just put away money a little bit every month for your artist or whoever until you can you know, you can self-fund. I mean, we self-funded the comic for the first three issues uh, so people could see that we were for real. And after the first Kickstarter failed, and one of the reasons, one of the many reasons it failed is we had done the first three issues, six issue miniseries. We were going to, it was like for $25,000, to finish production of the entire thing and produce a beautiful trade paperback. Um, obviously that didn't work out, but we got over 200 backers and I think it was like seven or $8,000. So we said, okay, historically we know we can get this amount of money. What can we do with that? So instead what we did was we broke it down into smaller bits 
and did a print run for the third and the fourth. And then we did a production, you know, and then built on that and then built it little by little by little. Obviously it took longer, but we were able to get it done and not have to outlay our own money for it. Um, our last Kickstarter was the best we've ever run. Um, we had 998 backers and made over $36,000. Um, I didn't really expect that. I mean, I always want to be, you know, do a little bit better each one, but this one just kind of went crazy <laughs> and which, which is wonderful. Um, so yeah, but it's, you know, it's, it takes time to build up to that point and to build the reputation of delivering all of your, uh, all your Kickstarter rewards, uh, relatively on time. Yeah. We're, we're pushed out a little bit here. We'll be about a month or a month and a half late for, I think for people getting, but that's not too bad in the scheme of things. And, and I keep them well informed. That's another thing. You do have to keep your backers well informed of where everything's at and, and what's going on. But yeah, it is, like I said, it is a second full-time job. Uh, you need to prepare for that. And we used to like pre-make dinners ahead of time <laughs> for the 30 days. So we, they would just like throw it in. We don't have to do that so much anymore because I've done so many of them that it's like, okay, I, I, I start about three months ahead of time prepping for the Kickstarter. So I just do a little bit every week, a little bit every week. And start and so everything is ready to go and to launch and and obviously the time commitment becomes more and more as you get closer and closer and closer to that but yeah i mean i've yeah i've already started promoting it and um i have postcards and a landing page that people can in fact i can probably send you that as well well actually when this runs the campaign will already be going so i will send you the link please do to the campaign uh when we launch but yeah it, the, the audio drama is going to be interesting because we have no historical data for that unlike the graphic novel uh but i i'm fairly confident that we'll fund i have no idea how well we'll do not a clue because i just I have i have no data so this is going to be interesting <laughs> all right every once in a while it's it's good i think to just go do something uncharted and see what happens with it. Yeah, well, it is. It's breaking into a new market. But that new market that is interested in audio drama will then probably go, wait a minute, there are graphic novels to this? Wait a minute, there's a novel? Wait a minute, you know, what else can I buy? And that's part of it. It's it's very classic transmedia Mm -hmm. marketing propagation. Um, if you haven't told, I used to be a marketing director in another life. So <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, no doubt that is super helpful. Yeah, it is. It is. It is helpful. It's still time consuming and exhausting though. Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. Cause you know, ideally anyone who's writing something, designing something, creating something would really prefer to be spending all of their time working on that and not having to deal with 
the part where if you want to make any money from it or get it into the world even for free you gotta do some stuff to make that happen it doesn't just happen by magic oh yeah i mean i remember our first website i created and it looked oh my god it was so awful it just looked terrible but it's the best i could do because i couldn't afford anyone and it was just some from a template from the website and, and this was like eight nine years ago now so you know those templates look pretty crappy back then and then my isp provider uh talked to him and we worked out a deal and he redesigned it um it definitely needs to be redesigned again because i think the website's about ready to implode <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but but that's another task i is on the back burner yep yeah, because if you don't make that time to do the creative part, then, you know, you'll, you'll not only lose your own motivation and your energy to keep going, but you won't have anything for all of those things to put out. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm more, I've already had this discussion with my husband. It's like, okay, I need to, you know, we don't know how the audio drama is going to do, and, and that's fine. It's going to do what it's going to do but I'm going to have to start cutting away time to start fleshing out the outline for the new graphic novel. Um, you know, Gwen, I, I believe is already on board. Cause I said, Oh, we're going to be doing X, Y, Z. And she's like, Oh, yay. So I, I assume that's a yes, <laughs> but she's exhausted. She's got a, a one-year-old at home. And I'll do it right there. Yeah. Uh, there's, I've, written the first novel in a uh, a trilogy that's a prequel novel series and i want to get back to write the first the next two which i just i haven't had time to do and you know the nice thing is that you know i've had people say like hey i you know really like you to write this thing for me and you know they're going to pay me and that's great but it's like carving out that time mm -hmm. is a problem yeah so, i'm flattered but yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you have the comics the novel graphic novel and now there's going to be an audio drama where do you think do you, do you have plans beyond that i mean because part of me says good grief that's plenty right there but <laughs> hey i don't know tv series movie i i don't know what you might have in mind um yeah, I mean, obviously, movie, TV series would be awesome. It's uh, finding the right partner. And I'm would always, I'm willing to wait for that, for all of that to, to come into to sync. Uh, I'm not in any hurry to, you know, because if I'm going to do it as, if it's going to go out into the world as a TV series or a movie or something, I want it to be good. So I want to make sure all of the, the team that's in place is, you know, fully committed, loves the project. And um, so we can all go forward and be successful. So, yeah, I'm, you know, I would say 10, 10 years ago, I'd be much more like, oh, I must get it, you know, get it into the movies and get it to this and do this, do that. And now I'm like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um obviously 
that's being a little flippant. No, obviously I would love it, but yeah, I I'd rather wait for the right partners to come along for, so everyone is successful. Um, uh, as with everyone I work with and I hire, I always want to set them up for success. I mean, that's always, I'm, I'm happy to say almost probably almost everyone who has worked for me has gone on to bigger and better. And a, a lot of that has to do with the promotion I do for Boston Metaphysical. So people see their work and um, how wonderful they are and how good they are. So they snatch them away. Hopefully they won't snatch a Gwen away anytime soon. But <laughs> yeah, she gets offered jobs right and left now because uh, she just does marvelous work. Um, but I think she's going to stay on board because we, we have a great working relationship and, uh, and we're both having fun. So I feel like that is so key. And the, the fact that you can watch these people go on to bigger and better things is like the best bonus in the world. But I also feel like you're seeding that just by the fact that you are trying to set them up to succeed in the first place and then having fun with it. I, I feel like this is a Venn diagram that overlaps very nicely in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, if you're, you're going to be out in the business world, you, you know, work with people you enjoy working with life is too short, you know, not to. And, um, uh, you know, it's just, it's not worth putting up with the nonsense. It's just like you yeah. got to cut the nonsense out and, and move on. Yeah, I think that's a great philosophy for many, many things in life. Many, many things. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I feel like we're probably at a great place to stop, but I okay. also feel like I should check and make sure there isn't anything we missed. <laughs> um, let's see. We've got... Uh, we talked about the audio drama, which I know when this uh, is aired will be live on Kickstarter. It is called Boston Metaphysical Society, The Ghost Ship. Um, it brings back Samuel. Uh, it's set in the earlier time period. Um, as the series has grown, I've added additional characters. But this one focuses on Samuel, uh, Caitlin, and Granville. Um, that was a budget decision uh to put it just to try to, I mean, we have a full cast we have like 12 different characters and it'll have sound effects and music uh we're gonna get a really cool flash drive that people a reward tier that people can check out we will have a cd um if people want that because gwen has already done the cover art which looks amazing um uh the story itself uh, is about the the team of Samuel Granville and um, Caitlin. Uh, ghost ship sails in to Boston Harbor, and the innocents start dying. So they got to figure out what's going on and stop it before it gets worse. Sounds good. But and oh, I will. Want, I do want to recognize the team on that. I was very fortunate. And actually, I have to blame it on her. Eddie Louise Clark. <laughs> Always have to blame People it on Eddie. People may have heard on this podcast just recently. Yeah. Yes, just recently. Uh, 
We met, I think, through Clockwork Alchemy, which is a small steampunk convention in Northern California, and her husband, Chip. Uh, they run a, or they have run, it's currently up there right now, uh, an audio drama called Sage and Savant. Uh, it was on for four years. Uh, she and I hung out at the Nebula Conference a few years back, and she just looked at me. She goes, you have to do an audio drama. You have to. You have to. <laughs> like, okay, but I don't know how... And so her husband, Chip, is a composer, audio director. So I, I hired them. And they are my production team. Uh, Eddie is uh, the, um, my script editor and also a mentor in teaching me how this whole business works. Uh, and Chip is not only the audio director, he was the director for the actors. Um, I've been shadowing him. Uh, I would love to direct eventually, but I'd probably have to get another season under my belt to shadow him to, I think, to be effective because he's, he's very, very good at it. Um, and so, yeah, that's, you know, that thing I was talking about, about picking the right team. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I hired them, brought them on board and, they have just uh, been amazing. But yeah, I've handled all the, the producing side of managing the actors, auditions, paperwork, contracts. All of that is, is on me. Um, but yeah, I wanted to give them a shout out uh, because uh, they've just been so wonderful and so helpful uh, in getting this done. So I think the way Chip is going probably by the time the kickstarter is running i know the voices for all eight episodes will be done and i think all the sound effects will be done so because it's an eight an eight episode series about a half hour each episode um give or take a minute or two and um so the, the last thing they'll be left to do is the music so I do anticipate that uh, everything will be done by January of 2022 for, you know, to be shipped out. But we are on track for that. So you're definitely in good hands with Eddie and Chip. They're oh, awesome. yeah, they're, 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 they're just marvelous and, and so easy to work with and have educated me a lot. So that's <laughs> been great. I bet. Well, I will look forward to that and, and, you know, following the journey from Kickstarter to January and seeing where everything ends up. Great. Thank you. And, and thank you so much for having me on the show. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for coming. It's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. That's our show for this week. Thanks so much to Madeline Holly Rosing for joining me and to you for listening. If this episode inspired you, please do subscribe and leave a review. They make such a big difference. Thanks. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.